Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Our guest is no one less than Dr. Anthony Fauci. He is and has been the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in the United States since 1984. Some say that he has probably been as important to HIV and AIDS research as Newton has been to physics. Dr. Fauci oversees an extensive research portfolio of basic and applied research to prevent, diagnose and treat established infectious diseases such as HIV and AIDS, as well as emerging diseases such as Ebola and Zika. In 1984, when a mysterious plague called AIDS was devastating an already stigmatized patient group, the gay community and intravenous drug users, he did something quite unprecedented. He opened his doors to the AIDS advocates and built personal relationships with many of them. He traveled across the country to meet with AIDS patients and their physicians, as well as with activist groups and created new channels of access to experimental drugs. Dr. Fauci continued to gain insight into the precise mechanisms of immune dysfunction in AIDS. He spearheaded research that led to the development of a series of drugs that have made it possible for HIV-positive patients to live long and active lives without developing full-blown AIDS. Today, when a person takes antiretroviral medicine and brings down his viral loads below detection, he cannot infect his or her uninfected sexual partner. This is referred to as treatment as prevention. Dr. Fauci has relentlessly pressed the White House and Congress for an increase in funding for AIDS research and treatments. Within 20 years of taking the reins of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Fauci has secured a thousand-fold increase in the Institute's funding. He was one of the principal architects of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, better known as PEPFAR, a program that has saved millions of lives in Africa and throughout the developing world. Dr. Fauci continues to explore new treatments for AIDS and a vaccine to prevent HIV infection.
Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a privilege to be here today. It's my pleasure. I, I'd like to start with the very beginnings. So this year is going to be the 38th year that you allowed gay men with an unknown disease to be allowed in your hospital here at Bethesda, Maryland. Right. You were there from the very beginning. It was all a big mystery. Nobody really knew what was going on, only that people were dying from a strange disease in very unpleasant circumstances. Now, could you walk us a little bit through what it was like at the very beginning, what went through your mind and how this unknown disease eventually became known as AIDS? Well, it was a, an interesting situation with me because I had been involved in a relatively successful career for about nine years from the time I finished my medical fellowship and training in infectious diseases. And I was doing really very well. And then in the summer of 1981, when I heard through the MMWR, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, about this first group of five gay men from Los Angeles who presented with pneumocystis pneumonia, I thought it was a curiosity, but it was something about it really bothered me. And then exactly one month later, in July of 1981, the second MMWR came out of 26 curiously all gay men who were otherwise well before, who now had a bunch of opportunistic infections and Kaposi sarcoma. And I made a decision then that I had a very ominous feeling that this was a new disease and it looked very much like it was sexually transmitted based on the epidemiology of contacts and, and, and clusters. So I made a very, I think, transforming decision in my life. I decided that I was going to stop what I was doing in a very successful career path, and I would start admitting these men who were at the time almost 100% gay men, very, very unusual to get an injection drug use. It was almost all young gay men. And at the time, since it didn't have a name, <laughs> we were calling it gay-related immunodeficiency, it didn't have an etiology, and it clearly didn't have a treatment. So we were bringing in men, since we didn't have a diagnostic test, who were likely infected for years and had advanced disease. So I went from taking care of patients prior to AIDS, developing therapies that were making them well, and my my modus operandi was you come in to the hospital, I treat you, you get better, and you leave. And then all of a sudden, my world changed because we were bringing in these men who by the time they got to us, they were desperately ill. And it was, I, I, I talk about it, I write about it, it was the dark years of my medical career and the dark years of my life because I was, I was surrounded like all day, evening, night, weekend, with desperately sick people. The only thing that got us through was the amazing courage and, and uh, resiliency of, of the young men who were in a totally unique situation in modern day of having a disease that you're seeing your friends all around you dying, and you know you have this disease and you don't know what it is, and you have doctors like me and my colleagues and nurses and others who are trying to take care of you and furiously and, and, and in a very energetic way trying to find out what the hell is going on here. It was an, an experience that's completely unique, certainly to me, but unique in medicine that you're in that situation in the, in the 20th century mm -hmm. to have that happen when we first started seeing HIV. So it was 
terrifying, depressing, but yet invigorating because you were trying to help people who were struggling to stay alive and you had nothing to do. But I say, you know, you use a metaphor. It was like putting Band-Aids on a hemorrhage. You were treating opportunistic infections. You would treat one that would go away and then to get another one. And then you would treat that and that would get away. And, and then the horrible thing about it was that almost all of them died. I mean, virtually. Well, at some point you thought that it was a, a US-based disease as well, which wasn't true. Oh, of course. I mean, <laughs> typical the way things evolve in medicine. The knowledge is incremental. We didn't get it all at once. We thought, first of all, it was a, a US disease that was all gay men. Then it was a US disease that was gay men and injection drug users, and then people who get transfusion, and then heterosexual, and then babies born of mothers who were infected. It wasn't until, it's interesting, it took a really long time because we were getting, I actually sent one of my people to uh, Kinshasa in Zaire. They were having a strange disease there that was called slim disease, and it was all heterosexuals. And they were reporting. I mean, I remember because one of the people there, the Belgians sent a guy named Peter Piot, who yeah. became a great friend. I sent a fellow named Tom Quinn, who has worked for me. The CDC sent a couple of other people there, and they were there seeing these cases that looked exactly like what we were seeing here. But it's amazing, retrospectively, and almost like you can't believe it. People were saying, no, that's not AIDS, because AIDS is among gay men, and all of these people are heterosexual, until it became very clear that we were dealing with exactly the same disease, only the demography was very, very different, and it was predominantly heterosexually transmitted, although there was certainly transmission with men who have sex with men in Southern Africa, but predominantly it was heterosexual. How quickly did you realize that international collaboration was going to be very important to solve this issue? Oh, pretty quickly, because we were seeing cases that were coming from Haiti, And we sent one of our people down to Haiti to figure out what, what was going on in Haiti. So we had people that we sent to, to Haiti and people that we sent to Sutherland and Central Africa. And that was within about a year and a half that we knew this was global. And then the, the thing that really turned it around is that when the virus was discovered in 1983, shown to be the cause in 84, and the blood test was available in 85, And that's when we started using the terminology, we were seeing the tip of the iceberg because we were seeing hundreds of people who were full-blown AIDS. But when you did screening in bathhouses, in gay bars, in places where there was a high risk, you realized that there were an enormous number of people who were well, who looked and felt well, but who were infected, which made us realize retrospectively that the people that we were seeing in 1981 and 82 and 83, before we had a test, they had been infected for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years by the time they got to us. Wow. You've been advising five presidents in your capacity as director of the NIH. Right. Now, you've also been one of the principal directors behind the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief that has helped millions of people in the developing world. How would you describe the initial response to HIV under these different presidents? How has it changed over the years and what has eventually led to the birth of PEPFAR? The first president that I served was Ronald Reagan, who had many, many good qualities. But the one thing that I think if he were to come back to do it over again, 
he probably would have been a little bit more vocal and used the bully pulpit of the presidency to call attention to the fact that we were dealing with an emerging pandemic. And we were dealing really, even though there were relatively few cases, it was really a, a public health emergency. It wasn't until his second term that he actually even mentioned the word AIDS. And it was clear he had a lot of gay friends. But since he was a conservative Republican, they didn't feel it was appropriate to, to come out really forcefully about this. Interestingly, when George H.W. Bush, who I had the privilege of becoming quite close friends with, when he was vice president and thinking of becoming running for president, he realized that he better get to learn a little bit about HIV and AIDS. So in 1988, when he was deciding to run for the presidency, he asked the secretary of HHS and the director of NIH, could he come and visit this guy, Tony Fauci, who had been studying AIDS? Because now it was 1988. So I'd been doing this already for seven years. And I was very visible uh, in, in doing it because I was trying to be a, a vocal advocate for more resources for those kinds of things. So he came and visited me at the NIH and I brought him around. That was the first time that he and Barbara Bush picked up an AIDS baby. That was huge in this country to have the first lady of the United States to pick up an AIDS patient. And I have a, a scene and a picture that I show often. I brought him to our solarium on our ward. And once every week or two, we would have a focus group with the patients. We'd sit down as a group and kind of ask them how things are going. What could we do differently? What can we do better? We brought the president to that focus group and he got a chance to really understand. And when he left, he told me, he said, if I become president, we're going to pay a lot of attention to this. And, you know, next thing you know, next year he's president of the United States and the budget of the NIH went up considerably and continued to go up. It wasn't just him. It was the Congress of the United States also was very supportive of that. So that was him. But the numbers of cases started skyrocketing. The activists did not treat him favorably. They thought that George H.W. Bush didn't do enough. Yeah, it wasn't really serious. About yeah, the whole thing, yeah, but he actually was. But what he was struggling against was a very conservative group that he was in at the time. But he himself, I know because I spent a lot of conversations with him, he himself was very empathetic towards what was going on and did a lot of things behind the scenes. You know, the disability acts that allowed gay men to get uh, anti-discrimination type things. So it, it, he did a lot, although as the activists say, he could have done more. When Clinton became president, he was very open. I mean, he immediately hired a person in the White House who was essentially the head of the White House Office of AIDS. Uh, he had a personnel manager who was a gay man. He was very proactive about making being gay and being infected, normal, normalizing in the good sense. Yeah. I mean, trying to destigmatize it. Although the budget, unfortunately, wasn't as much as you would have liked it to be. The Congress would come in and they would do it. But Clinton was clearly, I think, the turning point in the official recognition of gay men, gay women, I mean, in the administration, trying to destigmatize it. When did Pat Farsi the light? Well, 
that was the surprise to people, but not to me, because I got to know George W. Bush when he was a staffer in the White House of his father before he became the governor of Texas and before he became the president of the baseball team, the Texas Rangers. And when he became president, I got to know him very well for a number of reasons. One, because of 9-11, I was involved in developing a biodefense program against what we thought might be bioterror on the part of al-Qaeda. Turned out it wasn't. It was a homegrown terrorist who did the anthrax attacks. But that got me very close to President Bush. And then in 2002, which was six years after, in 1996 was the watershed year, because that was the year when the triple combination that included a protease inhibitor completely transformed the lives of HIV-infected individuals. So from 1987, the first drug was AZT, was approved. From 1987 to 1989, 91, 93, we started giving combinations of two drugs, which did pretty good, but didn't really knock the virus down to undetectable. In 1996, with the protease inhibitors, the combinations of, of that brought the virus to below detectable level. And we called it the Lazarus effect. People who were in hospices, who were dying, just turned around and got better. And we realized that you could really save the life, truly save the life. Even people who Even people who were advanced. It was better to treat them early, of course. You treat someone who was infected before they get sick, and they never get sick. If you treat someone who was infected and sick, you could get them to, to rebound a bit. When the president realized that, because I was briefing him reasonably frequently on, on these things. In 2002, he came and got with his staff. People don't know their names, but they're heroes in my mind. Josh Bolton, Gary Etzen, people like that, Jay Lefkowitz, brought me in the White House and said, what I want to do is that I truly believe that we, the United States of America, have a moral responsibility as a rich country who now has the capability of saving the life of an HIV-infected individual, that we cannot let people die in the developing world, particularly in Southern Africa, but not just Southern Africa, merely because of where they were born and the economic situation of their country. So I want you to go to Africa, and I want you to figure out, can we feasibly, in a transforming and accountable way, essentially equalize it so that the people there have the accessibility of prevention, treatment, and care. So he sent me in the early spring of 2002. I went there, I traveled around, I looked around, and I saw what would happen if you actually gave drugs. So there wasn't a lot of drugs, but some smaller philanthropic organization were giving money to groups in Africa, like the AIDS Service Organization and others. And it was clear that if you gave them the medication, they would take it, their viral load would drop, and they would respond just like we would. There were some people in the United States who felt there's no way you could ever do a complicated medical regimen like multiple pills multiple times a day to Africans. You know, thinking about that, that probably was a little bit of a subliminal and not so subliminal racism about that. Clearly, that plus stigma and all the... the things together. So I came back to the president and I said, I think we can do it. And he said, okay. He said, go do it. 
put a program together, get the most people on, on the drug, figure out a way. And I said, you know, Mr. President, this is going to cost a lot of money. And I remember him saying, let me worry about the money. You just put the program together. So with my colleague, who was my assistant at the time, Mark Dybel, who ultimately became one of the directors of PEPFAR, we spent months over the summer and the fall putting this program together. And then finally, at the end of 2002 and going into 2003, we went back and forth to the White House and we presented it to the president one last time. And he said, let's go with it. And then on the January 28th, 2003, he made the announcement of $15 billion program, five years, treat 2 million people, prevent 7 million infections, care for 10 million people. And from then until now, it's, you know, treated 14 million people. Is the role of PEPFAR today as relevant as it was in the beginning? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what's good about it now is that some countries that have taken over some of the cost and expense of treating before it was PEPFAR was doing almost all of it. Now some countries who've reached a degree of sophistication, like South Africa, are doing a lot for themselves. Now, I'd like to talk about um, ending the HIV epidemic plan for America. But before I do so, I'd like to place a couple of things into context for our audience. Over 700,000 American lives have been lost to HIV since 1981. Today, 1.1 million Americans are living with HIV. Many more are at risk of HIV infection. Now, looking at new infections, obviously, they aren't as high as they used to be, but progress seems to have stalled at 40,000 on a yearly basis. Now, without intervention, that would mean for the next 10 years, 400,000 new cases of HIV positive people. President Trump, during his State of the Union this year in February, announced a very ambitious plan, which is ending the HIV epidemic, a plan for America, where he said that within the next five years, we're going to reduce HIV infections with 75%, within the next 10 years, 90%. Now, how feasible are these plans, in your opinion, and how will these be executed? Well, I think it's feasible because we I mean, we made the plan. <laughs> Bob Bob Redfield and I and uh, and uh, Brett Gerard, the assistant secretary and the director of HERSER, the director of the Indian Health Service, we got together and we put together this plan. And it was really based on some very interesting facts about what tools we have. So the way I described it, the way we brought it from our group to the secretary of HHS, who is Alex Azar, who was very important in this because he was the one that brought it to the president and said, we need to do this. And the president agreed. But there were a couple of scientific issues. One, a thing called treatment as prevention. So treatment as prevention. And we have multiple medical studies that have definitively proven this that if you take an HIV-infected person and put them on any retroviral therapy and decrease the viral load to below detectable level, that person will not transmit the virus to their sexual partner. Not, may not, will not. And the reason is we did three subsequent major studies and showed that with more than 150,000 condomless sexual acts, among gay men particularly, there wasn't one single linked transmission. The evidence is conclusive. The evidence is overwhelming, which made me come out much to the pleasure of the activist community at a big meeting to say, you 
equals you. And it does. Superimpose upon that pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, in which if you adhere to PrEP, either on a daily basis or on demand, you decrease by more than 97% the likelihood that you would acquire HIV infection. So if you drop back a few yards and say, okay, let's play a theoretical game. Theoretically, if you accessed all or most people who are infected and put them on therapy and get the viral load to below detectable level and get those individuals who are at high risk and put them on PrEP, theoretically, you could end the epidemic right now. But we don't live in a theoretical world. We live in a real world. And that's the reason why we said, if we can implement to its fullest this program, if you model it, we can actually in five years decrease by 75% and in 10 years by 90%. And the reason you could do it is that if you look at the map of the United States and you look at the United States has all these little boxes on the map and there are counties. There are 3,007 counties in the United States. More than 50% of all the infections in the United States are in 48 of those counties plus the District of Columbia plus San Juan, Puerto Rico. So just think about that. 50 locations out of 3,007 have more than 50% of the infections. So the thought is, then you take seven southern states who have an interesting phenomenon, that they have a preponderance of infections in rural areas, almost all young African-American men who have sex with men. So right away, you know where the concentration is. So if we can marshal resources, get health workforces, get people into the community, engage the clergy, engage community leaders in those focus areas, we think we can do it. Like a now, a total full-fledged response. But, and, and the example we gave is that there's a program called the Treat All or Rapid Program in San Francisco where the workers, the community workers, the health workers, proactively go into the community, gay bars, bathhouses, homeless shelters, on the street, and they test someone right there. And they don't go away and say, come back for the results. They wait 20 minutes. They get the result. If you're infected, they give you a starter pack and say, you start right now, and we're going to write you a prescription, and we're going to call you up in 30 days and remind you that your prescription needs to be filled. That was going out and not saying, because if you look at the care continuum, you lose people at every step. So you go in and someone gets a test. You say, come back for the test in a week. You lose a certain percentage. Then you say you're positive. Here's a prescription. You lose a certain percent who don't fill the prescription. Then you get those that fill the prescription, but don't take their medication. By the time you get down, you lose a certain percentage of the people. When you go out and proactively get people involved in the healthcare system, that's how you get that decrease in the incidence. And San Francisco, the incidence is starting to go down. New York State 
when Governor Cuomo heard about this thing in San Francisco, he's doing the same thing in New York. And in New York City, the incidence is going down. We here, my own group, in collaboration with the Department of Health in Washington, D.C., we at NIH went down, used our resources, and Washington, D.C. was the worst in the leaders of prevalence and incidence among black African-American men, adult men. They had like a 5% incident. It was like Southern Africa in Washington. That's gone down now because of going out into the community. I just got back from South Africa and I went to visit an orphanage of HIV children and we went into the townships and we spoke to the local people, some infected with HIV, some not infected with HIV, and I spoke to a local nurse and she told me that one, and it surprised me a lot, one of the facts that she was encountering on a daily basis is that HIV positive people that were taking the medicine and felt better, they just stopped taking it. Right. So how big of a problem do you think treatment inconsistency may be in the U.S.? And then, obviously, uh, resistance to the drugs on a more wider scale. No? I, I worry less about microbial resistance, viral resistance, than I do of just lack of adherence and then people slipping away and then infecting more people. You know, if you look at the percentages from the time someone starts therapy, the adherence goes down so that by 48 months, four years, it's down to about 60, 65%. So that is the reason why, despite the fact that we have incredibly good therapies for treatment and prevention, we want to continue to do research to make it what I call user-friendly. In fact, this is what I spoke about at the International AIDS Conference in Mexico City just about a month or so ago. My title was Optimizing the HIV Treatment and Prevention Toolkits, which means getting drug in a form that's much, much easier, like an injectable that you come in and get it once every month and then maybe once every two months. Passive transfer of monoclonal antibodies that you might be able to give every four months or six months, implants that you might be able to leave in there for a period of a year. So we're trying to optimize it so that we don't lose people because you're absolutely right. It's understandable that getting someone to take a drug every single day, even when they don't feel badly, they go into the clinic, they get a test, it's positive, they're not sick yet, and you say, here, we're going to give you a pill that probably is not going to make you feel as good as you felt before you took the pill. And that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Because some people, you know, human nature is is a beautiful thing, but it's a frustrating thing. So human nature is that if you think, well, I'm going to die if I don't take this pill, you're okay. You get a young person who's got so many things on their mind, they think they're invulnerable. You say, you're infected. I know you feel well, but you got to take this pill every single day. A certain percentage of them will start taking it, and then they'll say, no, nah, I don't want to take it anymore. And that's really a problem. It's really a problem. Uh, before I get to the International AIDS Conference, I want to talk to you. I want to ask you a couple of things about that. But in terms of the, the plan for America... Annually, the United States is spending 20 billion US dollars on direct uh, health costs, so to speak, for HIV and right. AIDS. 
Now, what is the plan proposing in this sense? Are you planning to spend more in more. the end or less? More. More. No, <laughs> it's got to be more because you're going to be finding people who are infected, who you're going to put into the healthcare system. Ultimately, in the big picture of life, you're going to save a lot of money because for every person who you prevent from getting infected, you're going to save over the lifetime between $400,000 and $500,000. But 12% of the people who are infected don't know it. And of the 12% who don't know it, plus those who know it but fall out of healthcare, about 90% of all the new infections come from someone who either doesn't know they're infected or is infected but isn't in a consistent healthcare system. So in the beginning, when you put all of these people into a healthcare system, it's going to cost more money. But at the end of it, it's going to be much, much less money. Yeah, which is, which is the idea, basically, right? Exactly. But what about funding in general? Because I've been interviewing a couple of speakers in the, within the HIV and AIDS fields. PTPL, for example, he was worried about funding, a funding crisis. In the annual report of UNAIDS, they talk about a funding crisis. And they say there's um, a gap of approximately $6 billion right. in what's needed and what's available. Are you worried about further funding yes. that could have devastating I am. I am. I'm, in fact, I, I, I always am concerned about that. And that's the reason why you've, you, you've got to continue making the case of why this is an investment It's not an expenditure. It's it's investment for humanity. For humanity, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, at the International AIDS Conference in Mexico, you just mentioned it. You you said that, and I'm going to quote you: "If you want a truly global, effective, durable end to the epidemic, the only way you're going to do that is with a safe and effective vaccine, together with all the other preventive modalities." You just elaborated on that. But how hopeful are you really? to find a vaccine for HIV and AIDS? You know, I am cautiously optimistic. I mean, there's no doubt that the challenge scientifically of getting a vaccine for HIV is profound. I mean, it really is. It, and the reason being is that unlike any other viral infection, to just make it more simplified, if you get infected with polio, with measles, with smallpox, even though you have a certain percentage of the people will die and a considerable percentage will get sick. At the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of people recover from the virus, clear it from the body, mm -hmm. and they are now protected for life against reinfection because their body builds up an immune system, uh, an immune response. So the body has already proven to you, the person who wants to make a vaccine, that This body can make a good response of protection. So the proof of concept of the vaccine, all you need to do is, in a way appropriate, mimic natural infection without hurting the person. The trouble with HIV is that unique among viral infections, HIV does not induce an adequate protective immune response, which is the reason why there isn't a single case that has been demonstrated among the millions of people who are infected of someone who's actually gotten infected and eradicated the virus with their own immune response. We have a very small percentage of people, a fraction of a percent, who are elite controllers, who without medication are suppressing the virus. 
but there's no evidence of anybody who spontaneously eradicates. And that means that when we develop a vaccine, we have to do better than natural infection. So we've got to present whatever this immunogen is to the body in a way that induces a better response than natural infection does. Do I think this is impossible? No. Do I think it's going to be easy? Absolutely not. But I'm cautiously optimistic that we will get a vaccine. And I, and, and I can tell you this, and, and I, as a scientist, in my judgment, I don't think we're ever going to get a 98% effective vaccine the way measles is. I just think the, the, the body is not programmed that way. I think it's feasible that we can get a 50, 55, 60% effective vaccine. If you get that 60% effective vaccine together with non-vaccine prevention, then I think you could put the nail in the coffin of HIV. And that's the reason why at the International AIDS Society meeting in Mexico, I was very careful in saying, I believe a vaccine together with non-vaccine prevention modalities. And what about a cure? That is aspirational. I am not so sure that we're ever going to be able to do that because it's going to be a balance. We have just started a very big program to try and do gene editing where you edit out the provirus without harming the person. The idea of a cure by stem cell transplantation is not feasible for the 37 million people living with HIV. Timothy Brown and the, and the London patient needed a stem cell transplant because they had an underlying neoplastic process. They had to get chemotherapy, conditioning, transplantation, and subsequent immunosuppression. Now, if you need it for your underlying cancer, you have the side benefit that it cures you of your HIV. But for a person who is healthy, leading a reasonably productive, happy life and wants to get off that one pill, if you want to cure that person, you better make sure you do something that is safe, scalable, and not you know, not costing $5 million per course of therapy. Yeah. What about um, the recent news about gene editing as, a, as an alternative to what you just mentioned? Yeah. Bone oh, no, no, gene editing. We, we're putting a major program looking at that. There's, so there are a number of things you could edit. You could edit out the CCR5 and make it almost like doing a transplant with a Delta 32 CCR5 person. The only problem with that is that there was a recent study that showed that when they followed a cohort of more than 400,000 people who have the homozygous defect, that they had something like a 21% greater all-cause mortality. So you better be careful when you're manipulating out genes that are part of your normal gene repertoire. However, with CRISPR-Cas9, you might be able to edit out the provirus itself. And there have been some promising studies in monkeys to show that you can get a monkey that's infected with SIV and edit out the provirus. Now, one of the problems with editing out genes, you've got to make sure you don't get what are called off-target effects, that you edit out the provirus, but you also clip out something else that all of a sudden creates mutations that lead to things yeah. like cancers. That's more complicated than... Uh, it's much more complicated, yeah. Okay. 
I'd like to talk also about uh, stigma, yeah. uh, HIV and stigma, which is obviously a big issue. And nowadays we see that HIV has become a chronic disease. You can live a healthy and happy life if you want to. Nevertheless, depression and anxiety numbers are on the rise. What, how big is stigma in the U.S.? And what, what is your view, your view point on this? Well, stigma is, is, is the mortal enemy of, of public health, for sure. It just gets in the way of everything that you want to do. It gets in the way of people even admitting that they might be infected. It gets in because they're afraid of what the stigma, stigmatizing consequences are. Gets in the way of people smoothly getting health care, continuing in health care. In the United States, there is stigma against gay men. There's stigma against African-American gay men. There's stigma against white gay men, transgenders, people who are HIV infected. But it isn't uniformly distributed throughout the country or among different demographic groups. So if you're living in the middle of downtown Manhattan in Greenwich Village and you're a gay man, be it a white or an African-American gay man, and you are either infected or not, the relative degree of stigma against you compared to if you're an African-American young man in a rural town in Mississippi or Alabama, there's a huge difference. So whenever you talk about stigma, A, you've got to realize it's present. It's present in very interesting ways. Some of them are really quite subtle. In the United States, for example, the stigma associated in a particular population with being gay and being infected with a disease that many people don't understand. If you've lived with HIV the way the people around here have, it's as normal as anything to have a gay man, white or black, with or without HIV, and it, you don't, it doesn't even phase you. But if you get out into certain situations with employment, uh, with just the way people think about you. So there's what I call the external stigma. And then there's the internal stigma. Absolutely. And that's the thing that people are just starting to realize right now. Uh, and we realize it now because we have such relationships with our patients that we talk about stigma and we say, oh, well, isn't it great that you don't have any stigma? And and several of them says, well, there's no stigma coming out, but it's the stigmatizing of myself. The shame. Yeah, the shame. And, and that's something that really is, I think, as important in many respects for the well-being and the peace of mind of a person than some jerk who's stigmatizing against them for a job or something like that. That's the reason why, one of the reasons why we are trying to go for a cure, number one, and we're trying to make the treatment and care of an HIV-infected person so intermittent that it isn't that daily reminding. I mean, I've had my patients tell me, the thing that gets me down, I look at me, I look perfectly healthy now, I'm working, I have a good relationship, but it's the getting up in the morning every day reminding myself that I have to take this pill, and if I don't, the virus is going to come back. I'm stigmatizing myself. I want to be able to feel completely normal. And that's one of the reasons why hey, you want to cure the disease. But number two, why someone who comes into a clinic to get an infusion of a monoclonal antibody every six months or gets an implant once a year 
that's going to make that huge, huge difference. Well, I, I, I've always said that it's difficult for, to expect, as an HIV-positive person, to expect society to destigmatize me right. when I keep stigmatizing <clears throat> myself. Absolutely. And I've seen that, I've seen that quite, quite often right. across the HIV-positive community. So I think that's amazing what, what you've just mentioned. Now, as an ending to this interview, because I believe you've, you've given some amazing insights and comments, well, what would you say to an HIV-positive person today as to how to live with HIV? What is your main message to that person? I would say to live with HIV as if you didn't have HIV. I mean, obviously you want to take care of yourself. You want to take the medications that keep you healthy. But I wouldn't rule out doing anything, feeling any way, doing whatever you want to do. Because we've said it so many times, you may be HIV positive, but I still care about you. Absolutely. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for this amazing interview. You're welcome. Thank you. So yes, a big, big thank you to Dr. Anthony Fauci for coming on this podcast and for sharing with us his fascinating journey, starting with what it was like in the beginning when no one knew about HIV and AIDS, the devastation it caused among especially the gay community, and how slowly but surely he started to get an insight into the nature of this disease. After almost four decades of relentless research, people living with HIV, when on treatment and with an undetectable viral load, can finally live a pretty normal life and cannot transmit the virus any longer. This is in great part due to people like Dr. Fauci, who has and keeps having an enormous impact on the lives of people living with HIV. Personally, I must say that it has truly been an eye-opening discussion about HIV and AIDS with one of the most prominent individuals on the topic in the world today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach, and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels, and on our website, www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you, and so does the world. Thank you so much.